Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? This is Lindsay Lerner, and you're listening to The Cost of the Status Quo. More people than ever are questioning why they do what they do and forging their own path. And on this show, I sit down with these entrepreneurs, trailblazers, creatives, and overall awesome beings to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the overall tips and tricks they're using so that the rest of us can do the same. This is The Cost of the Status Quo. Elevate your sound game with Filbert, the perfect upgrade for your recording or office space. Our producer, Andrew, has been pushing for a better recording environment. Say goodbye to basic egg crates and hello to stylish felt tiles that not only reduce 35% of ambient noise, but also show off your unique design sense. And the best part, these tiles are made from recycled bottles, making your recording space both stylish and eco-friendly. Get 10% off at feltright.com with code CSQ10. That's CSQ10. Let's give Andrew and you, our listeners, the top-notch sound that you deserve while making a positive impact on the planet. Share your creative Feltright designs with us and join the sustainable sound revolution. Today we are here with Ed Sweeney. A man who can not only play nearly any instrument you put in front of him, but who can also help you budget your business and do your financial reporting. Ed spent 14 years as the financial controller for Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Project and has been able to meet and collaborate with musicians from all over the world. Many of you who have been listening since the beginning may have already heard about Ed in a previous episode because he's also married to a previous guest, Tracy Sweeney. Today, Ed is here to share a bit about his story and the tips, tricks, and habits he's created along the way. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. Please continue to rate and review. It really does help. Welcome, Ed. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Oh, this is fun. It's good to see you again, Lindsay. (sighs) So good to see you. So we'll jump in and we'll go all the way back. Where did you grow up? Uh, I was a gypsy. (laughs) And still are. (laughs) You know, in one sense, I was born in Ware, Ware, Massachusetts, which is a small little town. And uh, so when I was living in Lexington, Kentucky and going to grammar school, Catholic grammar school, and the nuns asked me, where were you born? And I said, where? And they went, where? And I'm going, where? (laughs) You know, so I was kept after school and my mom was called down and where was your son born? Where? It's a great place to be born, but I only lived there six months. But by the time I was 15, I lived in seven or eight states. Wow. And what was the reason for all the, the jumping around? My dad was in radio. Oh, okay. He was a sports broadcaster. So I feel like I grew up the most in Lexington, Kentucky. He was the voice of the Kentucky Wildcats, and he owned the station WLAP. Oh, very cool. You know, four years old, being able to go see to the Kentucky Coliseum and and meet those basketball players. And, you know, you sort of think, well, of course, this is what everyone does. And it isn't until much later you find out. No, this isn't quite normal. Then we went from Lexington, Kentucky to Sanford, Maine. Okay, that's a bit different. And that first winter was just eye-opening. And my dad had grown up in the Worcester area. He went to Holy Cross. He was the voice of Holy Cross when they had Bob Cousy and Tommy Heinsohn and and them. So I grew up around basketball and radio. Okay. And <laughs> did you ever have any inclination to be a basketball player? <laughs> Only in my dreams. <laughs> I used to tell people that, uh, 
I could play basketball just as well as Larry Bird, but there was a reason why he got $7 million a year and I didn't. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, man. So how do you think moving around all the time changed your perspective for better or worse? I think moving around allowed me to see a lot of different parts of the country. It was a really different time. I mean, the late 50s, early 60s in Lexington, Kentucky, and being Roman Catholic, you were definitely in the minority, and you knew it. And if Adolf Rupp had not been decided that my dad was going to be the voice of the Kentucky Wildcats, we never would have lived there that long. So now, like you said, now you're based in in Rhode Island. And what was that journey like? To so you've been in Rhode Island a while now. How did how did you end up there? I went to Providence College, and I was their very first. While I was there, I was accepted as a chemistry major, but then worked with some people and became their very first music major ever. Oh, interesting. And what was the catalyst that got you into into music? In high school, I had seen a blues guitarist, blind blues guitarist by the name of Paul Pina play. I wanted to be able to play like that. And so I took guitar lessons from him for a while. And then he signed to Capitol Records and left Clark University and left New England. The song Jet Airliner, he wrote. Oh, wild. Got in a pissing match with the record company, which is, <laughs> you know, what artists do. But the person who had, who had recorded the song played it for the Steve Miller Band because he was out in LA and said, you have to hear this. and. I re actually reconnected with him because of the movie Genghis Blues, which was um, Paul had self-taught himself Tuvian throat singing while he was living out in San Francisco. His wife had died. And through shortwave radio, he taught himself. And there was a whole conclave of people from Tuva there. And they brought over one of the grand masters. And he went to see him and then sang for him. He was invited to a Tuvian throat singing contest. And so they went out and they made a documentary. And through that movie, I'm going, that's Paul. I wrote to the movie people and reconnected with, with him shortly before his death. But he first inspired me. He went and I was playing coffee houses as an open act. And I met this musician, Andy Cohen, who played country blues and folk songs. And, and I was playing pop songs. So he said, yeah, I can tell you don't like what you're doing. You're, you're not in love with it. You like it, but you're not in love with it. And so he sang me some songs and showed me things that I just fell in love with. I became very passionate about traditional music and much more fingerstyle guitar and everything. So then I entered Providence College. Why chemistry? Well, actually, the hard sciences I was good at in high school. And uh, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, uh, St. John's High School. We wore a sport coat and tie every day. No music program, no arts, nothing. So I got to PC, and uh, there was a priest there, uh, Father Haller, who was interested in starting a music program. So in one sense, we used each other. He was able to say, I have someone who's interested in studying music, so let's get this going. And then since, since there was no program, I had a lot of free range on what do you want to study? So I found someone who taught steel string guitar, fingerstyle. He was a classical guitarist. He sent me to someone by the name of Tony Salatan after a year. Tony is the person who was WGBH's first program. 
he is the person who brought Michael Royabodashore and Kumbaya. He found those in hymnals up in the Harvard Library and reworked them and taught them to his banjo teacher, who was Pete Seeger. Tony had the first nationwide music education series, Let's All Sing. And so he introduced me to, he just kept networking and networking. And so as I was graduating PC, I had gone to visit a man named Art Schrader, who was the balladeer at Old Sturbridge Village. And he said, you know, you could go get a degree in ethnomusicology, but none of the programs are really worth anything about American music. Because to them, ethnomusicology was music of other cultures outside the country. No one was introspective inside. And he says, or let me give you a list of people and you can go visit and listen to their collections and read their what they've got. And you're going to know more than anyone with a PhD in it. You won't have a degree, but you'll have a lot of knowledge. And I took the lot of knowledge route. And how were you able to communicate that to people as you were spending your time not learning and not going to school and not in, <laughs> in structure? Because I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bigger issue that I've experienced in my personal life, and I know other listeners have experienced as well, is this, this truly there is a difference between, to your point, that acquisition of knowledge and a traditional formal education. And, you know, having, having that piece of paper that says... I've accomplished X, Y, and Z versus the practical usage of the knowledge that you have. I've always enjoyed meeting people and talking to people. And I've always approached people that you owe me nothing. You know, you have something I'd like to learn from you. Could you please give me the time? And I think sometimes that approach is sort of forgotten, that you're asking, and you're asking on their timeline, not yours. That's really different. Instead of saying, I'm going to be available, can you make the time? It's like, what would be convenient for you? Exactly. Exactly. And what was the the method of inquiring to these people at the time? Because when was this? This was like the 70s? Yeah, this was the 70s. It was writing a letter. And were, were you finding people's addresses? Or are you just like, we're hoping for the best? <laughs> well, Art Schrader gave me the address of about a half dozen people. And then... I networked like crazy because then someone would say, oh, I have this, but you know, so-and-so, they have this. Right. Absolutely. Oh, no, I don't. Could you introduce me? Sure. When I graduated PC, I was given the, well, you don't have anything else to fall back on. And, And I took that to heart for a year, year and a half. I became an insurance agent. What being an insurance agent teaches you is, A, unless you call, nothing happens. As an artist, you're you're, you're sort of sometimes led to believe that you don't need to call. People will find you. I always take one of the great lies as if you build a better mousetrap, people will come to your door. No, that's one of the great lies of all time. If you don't go out and tell people about yourself, and you're not willing to meet people, and you're not willing to do a lot of things, no one's going to find out about you. And that's even true in social media now. So being an an insurance agent for a year, year and a half, I didn't find this a total negative. I was able to take a lot of lessons and apply them to music and making a living in music at that time. And 
One is when I was a chemistry major, I had a professor who used to really drive everyone crazy because he would write these long problems. And the whole thing of the problem was for you to figure out what he was asking. Okay. And, and you know, we laugh at that, but if you don't listen to people and you don't read and you don't realize what they're asking, you don't know how to answer. And then you learn it in your quote, sales training of listen to people, let them speak. And, you know, it's okay to be quiet, which is hard for me. <laughs> I, I get that. And so was there, for you, what was going on in your head at this point in time? Was, you know, 20-something-year-old Ed in his suit and tie for his insurance job, did you have this positive, optimistic, I'm learning something attitude? Or at the time, was it like, I have to do this job and then I get to do music or... Were you able to spin it? So what I had to learn is, you know, the thing I was falling back on was taking too much time. If you want to do anything, you put yourself into it. Literally, I, I one day walked in to the insurance company office and said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And everyone thought I was crazy. But I, I had to get to that breaking point to get there. And then... You know, there was a time I lived out of a van for nine months, you know, and so being February in a truck stop outside Philadelphia at, you know, it was minus 10 in the morning in an old Ford van down on the road dead, you know. Yep. And so what, what were the things that you started to do that got you from Philly in a van? Well, that's where I, I start really, I had the hard lesson of you've got to meet people. And you've got to talk to people and you've got to take what you want to do and make it accessible to others. And you know my music, you know, I'm a niche of a niche of a niche, you know, so it's not for everybody. And so you have to come to accept that that's really okay. That doesn't mean you're a bad artist. It doesn't mean anything. It just means you have a certain audience and you got to go out and find them. And so you're, you hit the road and you're traveling everywhere? I, I hit the road. I drove wherever I could. I played table to table at restaurants. Were you invited to those restaurants or did you show up? Like, what was that process like? Oh, part of that process was, was asking, <laughs> okay. can, do you mind if I do this? And I would play for the owner and the manager and they would go, sure, but you know, don't interfere with this. And I would go, fine, and work for tips and then share the tips also with the staff. So I, I had done that. And it's also how the staff works. Again, it's that understanding where you are and, and take, a, take a look around you. Was that something that was, was taught to you or is that something that you observed or did you pick up? I observed. Up? Okay. I observed and, you know, made my mistakes and learned from them. I think it was the summer of 77. I, I lived on Block Island and that helped me hone my craft because I was playing every afternoon, every evening meeting people and where friends of mine were doing festivals, I was meeting school programmers. I was meeting different clubs who saw me entertain people there because I was learning my skills of how do I take what I love and make it accessible to someone else. And that's entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's such a good definition of it. And it's not a bad word. It is taking 
what you love and what you want to do and figuring out how to communicate it to others. That transition is an art in and of itself. Do you differentiate your niche inside of a niche inside of a niche art that you create? Do you differentiate that versus entertainment? No. In fact, if you ever read Pete Seeger's biographies and stuff, he considered himself an entertainer. People talk about, no, he was a political activist. Yeah, he was. But he understood that once a dollar changed hands and he was in front of an audience, he was an entertainer. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard a lot of artists, I've, what I've seen and experienced in terms of going to shows and going to events and having that experience, what I've noticed is, for me anyway, there is such a big difference between people who can entertain and who consider themselves entertainers versus people who are, you know, maybe sitting on a bar stool in a coffee shop or something like that. And they are simply playing their music for simply the joy of playing their music, not necessarily to your point, that joy of exchange and entertainment. See, and, and I'm going to push back on you a yes. little bit there because <laughs> they want that, they want that exchange. Yeah. They want people to like what they do. Yeah. All artists crave that, like what I do. Love me. You know, love me. You know, even if you're sitting there playing your music or playing someone else's music, you want to be recognized. And I know some people think it's crass to think of it that way as as entertainment, but that's but that's what it is. You go on a date with someone and you don't want them to sit there and say, Yeah, well, whatever. You know, right? Right. <laughs> the question becomes, how do you sell yourself and be true to yourself? And and that's it is such a fine line. So to go back to you, you know, driving tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of miles around the United States, did you teach yourself how to go about booking different shows and setting up gigs? What was that process like? What sort of like organization did you have? It was really hit and miss. And and it's understanding the business aspect that you know, even if you're playing folky venues and coffee houses, there's a booking cycle. So you do not try and book a Christmas show December 1st. You know, you don't start then. And so you start understanding who you're talking to. Because I was doing this all myself, and you didn't want to be obnoxious, but you did want to ask questions. I learned how to talk to people. I used to ask so when can I bother you again? And usually the other person on the other end goes, you're not bothering me. And then they would give me of when to call him again. It was a tactic of trying to, who am I talking to? Why am I talking to them? And it's a very different tactic to when you talk to a club owner who is booking 100 shows a year and someone who's having one concert a month in their house. And it's, it's keeping records of when do people make decisions? The sales training of being a life insurance agent, one of the phrases is there's nothing worse than sucking up to the wrong person. <laughs> you know? Oh, gosh. Yeah. You know, That's so a true one. it's a true one. That is so, a true one. So you sit there and you go, and, you know, you would talk to someone, talk to someone, well, I'll bring it to the committee because so and so makes the decision. And you're like, oh, that's, that's nice. And, and you realize you're starting over. <laughs> Oh, that's brutal. That's brutal. And at one, what point along the way did you start to be able to be 
stable in some capacity with doing music? I don't know if I ever felt stable, to be honest, because there's always that next step. It's never, well, you've done everything, so now you can put it away. And then my priorities always kept switching throughout my life and going back and forth. I did these Christmas recordings, these instrumental Christmas recordings. And in one weekend, I was in USA Today, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, New York Daily News. I was in all these major newspapers. And I'm being interviewed in USA Today while changing Ben's diaper, who's now in his 30s. But, you know, so you're trying not to get christened by a little boy who's diaperless while talking to a reporter on, on the phone. And just to sort of give the context to that is that um, my mom, Irish Catholic from Ireland, an immigrant to this country, and I was telling her about this and, and her comment was, well, maybe this will get, get it out of your system now. <laughs> <laughs> and she actually meant that as a compliment, you know, but it was really sort of going, okay, mom. But even then, it isn't like I made it. That was all things so I could, if I wanted to apply them, and it's me applying them and to move to the next, to another level. The other thing that that you definitely did that was, you know, quote unquote, against the against the grain is being that stay at home dad. And so you're at what point were you or how were you rather raising kids, making music, you're in the studio, <laughs> having a family? Like, what did that balancing act? feel like? What did that look like? Well, first, one of the things that, that really hit me, so Tracy and I have two boys, Luke and Ben, and they were young and we were living in Cranston, Rhode Island. And I had done a West Coast tour, which meant I was driving for three weeks. And so I drove out and I came home and they had changed a great deal. And, you know, startling amount. And Tracy was an editor at the Providence Journal for the morning newspaper, which in those days meant she went home she went into work about three to four in the afternoon and got home at two to three in the morning because that's when the morning paper was done. And I realized I had been on the road for three weeks and I missed all this, these things with the boys. And when all the bills were paid and we paid childcare, I had made $150. And so we talked about, so I started pulling back then because Tracy had a job that had benefits paid vacations. And I don't regret that. There, there, are, there are moments of regret, but I don't regret it. You know, uh, because at that time I was getting booked at a fair number of places. I was on a record label and I pulled back and I pulled back from teaching. I still did some recording and then pulled back. And But what I learned from staying home is you're not the center of the universe. When you have kids, they make sure you know that you, every day, <laughs> you are not the center of the universe. So let's learn that. Yes. Oh, I learn every, that lesson every day. Yeah. And, and you know, it's an important lesson to learn because it also helps you relate to other people. You know, and so I bounced around performing just a little bit. But it wasn't until I started working at Silk Road and I bumped into Yang Wei, who was a people player. And he and I started playing together while they were here, that it really became. And again, I have an amazing partner who kept saying, you know, 
the boys are out of home, and that's where you were the happiest. There's a lot of stereotypes that I've heard, at least, around being a poor and starving artist or poor starving musician or poor starving anything to do with anything that's creative. <laughs> and so it's not, it's definitely not typical to be involved in anything as an artist or a musician that is accounting or finance related. So how did, <laughs> <laughs> so how did you, how did you find yourself as a financial controller and how did you first hear about the Silk Road project? I'm going to take two steps back because you know, I always do that. <laughs> So my two Christmas recordings were so, had been well-received that one thing you learn as an artist on a small label or an independent artist is major retail will not take you on. So Target said to me, we'll carry your recordings, but we won't buy them directly from you. So through Target, I met a company called Intersound Entertainment out of Atlanta, Georgia. And they were so interested in how did this solo artist get these recordings and meet these people, they had me create a division for them. So from that, I learned the things that most musicians don't want to learn, which is the real hardcore business side. You know, but I created a division for them and did all these trade shows. And then they were sold. It was a lot of passionate work. I learned about publishing, about royalties, about really when you look at a CD from the record company point of view, what are you looking, what type of property are you looking at? And I had the eye-opening, scary, absolutely awful. I get brought to this sales meeting for with the major buyer from Musicland who owned Musicland, Sam Goody's. They were 40% of retail in the United States, okay? So I'm there with Intersound. And so they look at these recordings. And, you know, as an artist, I got reviews. I got this and I got that. Nice cover. Yeah, no, we won't need that. And he was tossing them like chips. And what's your ad allowance? What are you going to back this up with? What are you going to have to bring in next? Didn't listen to one note. Didn't care. It was all widgets. And you're like, no, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, <laughs> my work. it was you're right. You know, Oof. do you know what I did for this? Right. Oh my gosh. So you learned what a different world. And I had seen friends and acquaintances who were proud that they got into strawberries or record chain and it hurt them financially. And you start to understand where are you playing? You know, where do you belong? And can you be happy there? How do you stay there? And what comes up next? And so, so many people think, I'll get this thing. I'll get into retail. I could get into retail and I got it made. No, you're just entering a new game, which you may or may not be able to survive. I, I got to see that firsthand. It was that education that was like, oh my God. <laughs> And in one sense, when you're head of a, a division for a record company and you're creating it, you lose a little bit of your joy of why do you like listening to things? What attracts you to things? Because you sit there and say, well, how does this fit in? What's that allowance? You listen to things so differently. So I got to walk the line of being an artist and then having friends at Sony, uh, BMG, and all this doing specialty products who would talk to me. 
and not talk to me as an artist, just talk to me as an equal, which is very different. It makes you realize that maybe you don't want to be there. Is that how you found out about Silk Road Project? No, I was actually, so we have that. I come back home. The boys are in high school, which meant I brought them to every baseball game, theater, karate tournament, everything. So I was doing 40 weekends a year with kid activities. And someone who Tracy had worked for at Brown had become the CEO of the Silk Road Project. Networking at its finest. At its finest. And they were looking for a finance director. And so I had taken this marina and brought them from the 18th century to the 20th century in terms of bookkeeping, accounting, installing a computer, and all these other things. And uh, so I was hired on the spot. And the reason I was hired on the spot is I had learned finance from doing. But Yo-Yo can be an incredibly free spirit. Like, oh, let's bring Don Juan Kim from South Korea for next week for these things. Because it would be really neat. And you sort of go, okay, we'll make it work. And yet, if you had gotten a straight CPA person, they'd shoot themselves. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. And so I think that's what's so important is that the, that intersectionality of it all, being able to, like you said, being able to understand the numbers, understand the logistics, understand the how, and then also be able to do it. But also what happens is that people who aren't used to artists, that saying no to an artist is not a bad thing. It can actually make them more creative. But then you had leadership who go, no, tell us your blue sky ideas and we'll go fundraise for that. And no, you won't. And, and what you do is you cause this, people want to hear, oh, I've just been green-lighted on this. I can go ahead and do it. Instead of saying, really, we're going to buy a barge to put in this river so you guys can do this? You know, a bunch of guys who never even floated a barge? Let's, you know. <laughs> yes. So that had its challenges. <laughs> but for 15 years, 14 years, I was able to network with whoever our hosts were because of all the skills I learned about just being able to talk, introduce myself, talk to people, and actually admitting when I don't know something, you know, and just go, okay, well, can you tell me about this? And that also included with the lawyers and also with their school VPs and everything. Do you have a, a standout moment or two from your years at Silk Road Project? Well, everyone has heard the story about Yo-Yo leaving his cello in a cab. That's true. He had left it in the cab. And so... A cab like in New York City? In New York City. His, and, and how... <laughs> I, seven, I know how, seven, much, how expensive they are. How much was this one? Seven million. <sighs> You know, so, oh so there was a group of us who called the cab companies and were able to figure out what cab it was oh and uh, get the, that. That was an interesting day. There was one day at 2.30 in the morning, I got an email that someone had forgot their shirt at a venue in China and they were two cities away. So could I call them and have them FedEx the shirt? Of which I said, and how much was the shirt? Oh, about $20. 
you know, you can get a new shirt. I think we're going to buy a new shirt. <laughs> you know, oh or you can buy a new shirt because you're an adult. And if you forget your <laughs> clothing, that's not on us. <laughs> So did you have a did you have an actual title or were you just like head get shit done? <laughs> Finance director and, okay. and sort of operations director. Okay. So when things go wrong, we call Ed. We call Ed. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, you know, there was a board meeting where the C in Chicago and I was in Cambridge and she calls me up to say can you call the hotel to tell them to bring lunch up early that we're at? And you're like, you couldn't call. You have the hotel phone in their boardroom. Just say, bring it up early. No, you call Cambridge to just stuff like that. I wonder about that a lot. I'm like, I, I understand, you know, the power dynamics and time is money mentality and those sorts of things. But to your point, like it took you just as long to call me to have me do a thing as it would for you to simply do the thing. And then we can all move on with our day. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you sit there go. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's a whole thing about artists and nonprofits and the arts that are so similar. So how do you teach artists that they aren't the center or the nonprofit that not everyone loves them? And you've got to be, you've really got to be at peace with that. Yes, I use the line a lot. There's a reason why there's chocolate and vanilla in the universe. You just accept it and you move on. I follow uh, Janice Ian on Facebook a lot. Great writer. And she talks about what you're doing is you're finding your audience. And your audience is not someone else's audience. It's yours. And now looking back, what would you say are the top, the top things that go into the making of, of a music career other than the actual playing of music or writing of music? Well, I think it's one is having a, a true passion and desire. When you sell yourself short and compromise, you really hurt yourself. You have to have that belief that no one else will have that you will find your audience. And no one else is going to have that belief. The hard way of saying that is that there's only one person in the universe who cares if you make a living in music, and that's you. It's no one else. And, and, and you know, accept that as that's where you're coming from. So that's one, to have so many artists say, I sound like this and I sound like someone else. No, you sound like you. Even if you want to be the best imitator in the universe, you're still you. So that's the selling point. That's the point. People come to see you. They don't come to see you being someone else. So don't just be you. And learn how you communicate that. The other thing is, I know some artists who are, they're brilliant in the studio. They, you know, which is his own set of skills. Everyone thinks these are all transferable, but you put them in front of the, an audience and know, you know, they lose it. And then there are others who are great on stage and you put them in the studio and you're like, eh. and it's more common than people think. The other thing that always gets me is 
once you find yourself in the us and them, then you've lost. It's always we. It's me, it's the venue, and it's the audience. It's a giant we. It's not that. It, it's not us and them. Oh, well, you might have already answered these, but we do ask every guest, what's the best piece of advice and the worst piece of advice that you've ever gotten? <laughs> The best piece of it, there's a lot of them, you know, and it, they all happen in a certain time. Because I thought about this, that question when you sent it to me. The worst piece of advice is do something so you can survive until everything else happens. Because I think that ultimately it takes away your soul. We all have limited time and energy. And if you're working a nine to five job and you're exhausted, when do you get to do your art? There's a scene in the movie Up in the Air with um, George Clooney. And he looked at someone and said, how much do they pay you to give up your dream? It's this guy he, who's being left. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, most guys bust tables. But you worked as a chef and you did this. So how much do they pay you to give up your dream? And he goes, 24000 because he's being laid off, so he has to come to grips with that. So he goes, this is a wake-up call. You can go back to your dreams. And to me, being musician, life insurance salesman, back to musician, uh, stay-at-home dad, back to being a division head for a record company, a marina, finance director of a nonprofit, back to trying – you know, in these COVID times, restarting a music career has been interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's a good word for it. You know, I'm just finishing up being a board member of the Blackstone River Theater. There was a, I can't remember who she was. She was a CFO who talked to the Harvard Business School, you know, and Silk Road was at the Harvard, was in residence at Harvard. So I went to, to listen to her talk and she talked about careers or jungle gyms. There's no corporate ladder anymore. And there's really, when I think about it, no more ladder for all of us to climb. It's a jungle gym. Right. Oh, I love and you that go analogy. Up and, and you fall up and you fall down <laughs> and you climb back up and sometimes you get on top, you know, and there's, there's no straight route. And, and, and I just don't think there's a straight route anywhere anymore. Oh, that's so true. And what's the best piece of advice then that you've ever gotten? Slow down and listen. I got that one from Tony, from Tony Salatani. So he was... When he would teach me guitar, he had this annoying thing of we'd be working on a piece of music. And I'd start at one rhythm and we'd start at the same rhythm. He'd play note for note exactly with me. And I had to learn real fast that, oh, I'm speeding up. You know, not a good thing to do. So for us to play together, which meant I had to listen to what he was doing and I had to listen to others. Couldn't have ended this more perfectly. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time today. This is great. Anytime. Ugh. I'll link everything, all of the <laughs> all of the things <laughs> in, in Ed's show notes and we'll we'll talk again soon. Uh looking forward to it, Lindsay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Cost of the Status Quo and learning the wisdom, stories, and ideas that will have you feeling inspired and ready to take on the world. If you've enjoyed this, please remember to share, rate, and review. It means the world to me and the team putting it all together. 
If you're looking for more information, you can find us at costofthestatusquo.com or on Instagram at costofthestatusquo. If you've got any questions or curiosity about me, you can find me at lindsaylearner.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-L-E-R-N-E-R.com or on Instagram at lindsaylearner. Thanks again for listening. Hope you have an awesome day.